Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, the White House reporter for The Daily Signal. This week, we'll talk about the use of fiction in American history, specifically how Westerns have been used to solidify national myths that tell us about ourselves. And Fred, I know this is kind of an, a, an unusual topic. We're usually dealing with the, the facts and nothing but the facts here. But this <laughs> week's episode, we're really talking about sort of the kind of myth-making that goes on in especially historical fiction that I think does tell us something about ourselves. I mean, it's not just about digging through documents and find original sources, but sometimes this kind of myth-making through fiction is a reflection on on society, on America, wouldn't you say that's that's? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly with uh, the older westerns, uh, that that was sort of shaped the the culture at the time. I think of a um, of a very sort of moral time, a uh, good guy, clear cut, good guys, bad guys type aspect. Um, yeah, I, I actually I, I think of almost the origin of this genre, kind of going back to. Weirdly, have James Fenimore Cooper in the early 19th century. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't think of him. You know, we think of westerns. You think of modern westerns, but you know, his stories like *Last of the Mohicans* and *Deerslayer* were, you know, fictionalized accounts of the West. Some, sometimes somewhat fanciful, but you know, talked about the character of you know, small R Republicans. I mean, uh, Americans <laughs> right. and 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 Native people too. I mean, that they were part of this kind of mosaic of the West is very much kind of indelible in our character. I think you know, Europe has kind of its knights in shining armor and chivalry and that kind of history. And for, for America, we really do have this kind of legend of the West uh, of, you know, talking about things like, you know, honor and what's right and what is civilization and, and you know, who we are. And they seem to be over time very important to how Americans see themselves. I mean, not just, you know, obviously the facts are, you know, what's very important when we look at history, but sometimes looking at it through a kind of fanciful vision Tell us tells us something about not just who we are, but what we want to be, the things that we uh, admire most about people. You know, we think about John Wayne and, you know, this old uh-huh. films. I mean, John Wayne is this this kind of heroic character. And, and he really is, you know, stands for what you think of, you know, American you know, masculinity. He's a strong character. He's going to do what's right. He's going to do what's just uh, and and he's always going to do that. In some ways, and, that's that's soft yeah. power. That's our vision to the globe. Is right. Americans are Protect. John Wayne Strong, strength? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, there was also Roy Rogers, who was sort of the the they always a good guy and did the right thing. He was, I guess, maybe a much softer image than sure, John for, Wayne. And for sure, I mean, but, I, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, but but, but still. Good movies. <laughs> Great movies. And I, yeah. I, th- I don't think you can really talk about, you know, the myth-making of the Western without talking about John Ford in particular, this your great director, mid-20th century, uh, a man who had been a famous director before World War II, served in World War II, produced documentaries on the Battle of Midway, uh, really chronicled the war, but then came back after and just focused on Westerns, in part because he said that, you know, he wanted to show the strength, show that the aspect of the men that he had served with in World War II, you know, show that in this this kind of art form, which is the Western. And I think that really came out. And there's some absolutely brilliant movies, like The, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and uh, The Searchers that, uh, you know, they are part of history. I mean, you look at The Searchers, it is based on, loosely based on a true story. Uh, and, and it's really about the development of of civilization, specifically American civilization, as it, as it really uh, as we saw ourselves, and certainly at mid twentieth century, 
uh, that was important. It's something you see a lot less in Hollywood today. I think that's something that's well, notable is you don't see these kind of the classic Westerns that we saw in mid-20th century. The ethos has changed quite a bit. There is, um, I, I think, uh, well, certainly Westerns themselves that, yeah, I, th- I think in the 50s, before that even, uh, pr- probably about 50% of the movies that were made back in those days. Uh, I may be over-exaggerating, but I mean, or, or maybe underwhelming yeah. <laughs> the point there. But, but it would seem like looking at older movies, a, a huge number of movies were Westerns of some sort. And now and now maybe there's a Western that makes it into a theater every three to five years. Yeah, and there are certain uh, good ones. I mean, recently this movie Hostiles that came out, I think was a, a good re-entry into that genre. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that I think there's frustration, especially with people, you know, watching Hollywood today. You know, of course, there's a controversy over this this movie, First Man, about uh, Neil Armstrong and the race of the moon. And it's kind of lack of, you know, just showing the flag planting and things like that. And I think I think there are a lot of people that worry, look, we're, we're, we don't want necessarily movies that are just always, you know, rah, rah, America's great, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's sometimes the total dearth of that. In some ways, you know, if we are trying to show things to the world, to the people across the world, you know, we want to show, you know, America got here because of some, obviously it was doing some things right. I mean, the United States is a successful, prosperous civilization, the most successful, prosperous for the average person of any regime in history. And showing a little bit of that positive side of what made that seems to be a good thing. It's something that, that Hollywood lacks today, and it seems that a lot of people are are searching for that. And unfortunately, given the especially the ideological predilection of, of Hollywood, we're, we're not getting that as much. Yeah, well, it's um, one, one interesting aspect, uh, as we're talking about the ideological aspect, one of the last conservatives in Hollywood is, of course, Clint Eastwood, right? Right, and, right. And, and he got his start quite a while back in Westerns. He was on Rawhide and then of course. the— you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and other movies <laughs> like that. So. Yeah, and, you know, and, and his most—I uh, mean, not his most recent, but one of the last movies he did was his Grand Torino, which was this great movie. It's right. not a Western, right, but right, right. there are right. some very uh, traditional pro-American values. Of course, the movie got no awards whatsoever, uh, didn't win any major awards, but a, a fantastic movie that has yeah, some was. kind of traditional values. And, you know, obviously it portrays this Korean War veteran and ultimately not a perfect light, certainly— <laughs> Uh, but ultimately a good light and, and transferring American values from, in his case, an American, you know, of the, the 1950s to the new immigrants, essentially. And, mm-hmm. and that's the whole point of the story is he's transferring the Grand Torino, which he built, to a young immigrant who reflects his values as an, as an American. And so, you know, we really do lose a lot of this. And it's unfortunate that we don't have more stories that have that talk even about our past in a way that's not just completely bad and just completely negative. I mean, it's there's something too showing the kind of ugliness and the reality of how things were. And obviously, things were very ugly through most of human history. We're just very fortunate today that you know we've we've kind of built up to so many great things and we're so prosperous. But it is good to see occasionally fictional works come out that have that kind of pro-American ethos, especially for for younger generations who are in some ways totally missing that in their modern schools. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. But I, I think uh, – go ahead, Fred. You gonna- oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just going to say uh, I, we mentioned some of these other people. Uh, I remember as a, as a little kid I would see these Lone Ranger reruns, and, <laughs> and they also came out with a movie, uh, which uh, I don't think it did very well, but uh, that was actually – 
my uh, first introduction to uh, General George Custer because he <laughs> played a very minor role in that movie. <laughs> yeah, and he's a, he's a character, so it's it's yes, great so that you bring that uh, up, Fred, because we actually had a chance to interview uh, Harry Crocker, who's who's the editor of Regnery Publishing and the author of a new book called Armstrong in the Custer of the West series, which is a fictionalized account of uh, George Armstrong Custer. So I, I think he definitely has a, a unique take on this individual who a lot of Americans are kind of forgetting about or only know for uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn. But but Harry had, a, had an interesting take, and we had an opportunity to interview him with the right side of history. Let's take a listen. So, Harry, it's it's really great of you to, to join us on the show. And uh, you, who have written numerous books, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, uh, on American history, uh, your latest is uh, Armstrong and the Custer of the West series, which is a, a really interesting fictionalized account of George Custer Armstrong Custer. Uh, it's a tale about if he had actually survived the Battle of, the, uh, of Little Bighorn. Harry, can you tell us uh, what the inspiration uh, for this, I think you could say, unique book was? Sure. No, I'm happy to. Uh, when I was a boy, I watched lots of Westerns and uh, grew up in the West. And I just got fascinated with uh, Custer and uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. Um, and I know the idea just came to me now as a much older person uh, to imagine a book, to write a book, a comic historical novel that would assume that Custer is somehow spirited away, um, saved from being uh, killed at the battle, and goes on to become this uh, undercover marshal in the West. Uh, so that's where the book takes off. The book is actually written as a letter to his wife, Libby. And Custer in real life and his wife had a famous romance. Custer is killed at Little Bighorn. And actually, I mean, tragic tragic circumstance, not just for himself, but for his family. When Custer dies there, dying with him are two of his brothers, a nephew who is named after him, uh, a brother-in-law who... uh, was known as the Adonis of the Southern Cavalry, who was a very handsome man. Uh, and so Custer is killed. He dies there when he's in his middle, late 30s. His wife, that happened in 1876, his wife lives on as his widow, never remarries until 1933, if I remember rightly, wow. and writes about their life together on the plains. So this is kind of this great, giant romance. Um, but also, uh, you know, the, Custer is one of these figures who is like, who, like Teddy Roosevelt, is sort of a walking caricature of himself. Right. right. <laughs> you think of Roosevelt, you know, you think of the the big glasses and the and the chattering teeth and the boy and all that sort of thing. <laughs> well, Custer really was this guy who had the flowing blonde hair, who really was like Errol Flynn on horseback, uh, who really was outrageously uh, brave, leading from the front. He was a he was boyish in demeanor. But he was also the boy general of the Union Army. He became a brigadier general at the age of, of 23. Wow. And there are a lot of misconceptions about Custer. People yeah. think, there were too many people think, uh, in, the, in this, I think, overall disparagement of American heroes, that, uh, that Custer, oh, he was this idiotic, arrogant, genocidal Indian killer, which is completely not true. It is true that Custer graduated last in his class at West Point. But that was not because he was stupid. It was because he was a prankster. And he got all these demerits for for pulling pranks and cutting class and you know, reading novels he should have been studying uh, French or something. But um, 
But and in fact, the day he was to graduate, or shortly, shortly before he was to graduate, he um, his upperclassmen witnessed two young cadets getting into fisticuffs. And instead of breaking them up, as he should have done, he decided to referee the fight to make sure it was a fair fight. <laughs> so when his class graduated, he was actually in the brig. He was court-martialed. Um, but, but Custer went straight from being court-martialed to the front in the Civil War. Wow. And the reason why he was promoted so rapidly was because of his gifts as a soldier, his natural gifts as a soldier. And these included immense physical bravery. These included, uh, in fact, one of the early things he had to do was to go up in these uh, reconnaissance balloons to look over look at the Confederate lines, which was a pretty dangerous duty. Yeah. <laughs> the balloon, of course, gets shot and pop, you come crashing down to earth. But uh, see, his superior officers noticed that he not only was very brave, but he was very good at reconnaissance. He was very, very good at reading land. He was very good at analyzing enemy dispositions. Uh, he was very aggressive. And among his early patrons was General Phil Sheridan. And Phil Sheridan was one of the people who, uh, well, not, not just Phil Sheridan, but I should say uh, General McClellan. General McClellan was actually his first patron. After the war, uh, when he came to fighting Indians, Phil Sheridan was one of his great, uh, his great advocates. And in the book, the book plays off all this real history. The book is full of real history, but a lot, but of course, part of it's made up as well. But the made up parts, they, they operate in this way, is that it takes real history or it takes real aspects of Custer's personality and just exaggerates them somewhat. So if Custer was famously devoted to his wife, the book plays off that for sort of comic effect. If Custer was uh, physically courageous, the book makes him a little bit even more so. Um, if Custer was, and this is true, had sort of a uh, St. Francis way, I guess you'd say, with animals. I mean, animals loved him, and he loved animals. Uh, the book takes that a little bit farther to comic effect, where he becomes a sort of... Uh, uh, he, he communes frequently with his favorite horses and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that's really, I think that's really a great part of this book. I mean, it kind of brings history to life in a very vivid way. I know you, you mentioned, you know, growing up on westerns. You know, I grew up watching a lot of John Ford westerns, and I mean, they really are. I mean, of course, they're fiction. I mean, of course, these are in part the stories created by Ford, but they really were a part. They accentuate American history. They accentuate the values that, that Americans had, not just at the time of the 1950s, but the times of past. I mean, you know, I just recently watched The Searchers again, and there's so much in there that's really about the pioneer spirit uh, in that movie that you really get a sense. You get to capture just a little bit of a feeling of how Americans viewed their past and what that past was like, even though it was, in some ways, a very a fanciful thing. It was a very creative uh, obviously, and it appealed to a wide audience, you really did get a sense of how the past was. Even if some of those characters were kind of blown up out of proportion, I think doing that actually made it very accessible to people, and it made it so that those images of the past really stuck into kind of cultural memory for Americans. And it seems like we're losing a lot of that. Yeah, no, no. The Searchers is actually uh, an interesting thing to cite be uh, because John Wayne's character in The Searchers, of course, is a former Confederate. He's a veteran of the war. Mm -hmm. And uh, nowadays, <laughs> again, I mean, for people like you and for me growing up watching these films, the idea that a, you could have been a Confederate and been a good American – 
I mean, almost every Western has these you know, Confederate guys who were ruined by the war, right. who uh, who are still good guys. They go out west, and they make a, a new starter or or whatever. That is getting lo- that is getting rapidly lost with these tearing down of the monuments and the what Jim Webb has called the Nazification of the Confederacy, which is just completely completely absurd. And even though I don't want to press this point too much. I want Armstrong is a book of adventure and humor. It is meant to be entertainment. But there is, I will confess, some underlying serious stuff to it. And one of the more serious underlying themes is is this, is an attempt to recapture in a novel, in popular culture. If it becomes a movie, great. But the, the, the sense of an, of an affectionate and patriotic and human and humane understanding of America's past. I, I fear that far too many Americans these days, young Americans especially, immigrants who are new to this country and are go, going to public schools are very vulnerable to this too. It, they're getting this leftist agitational propaganda version mm-hmm. where America's past is a long litany of sin. It is, it's racism, it is slavery, it is genocide. You know, if, if all this is true, which it's not, but if all this is true, then of course you think, golly, we need to remake this country. I'm glad I, I came here. I'm glad there are these economic opportunities here. But culturally, historically, wow, this country is, was an awful place. Right. You know, that, is, that is baloney. That is baloney. Um, and what we need to get back, I mean, I, I cite this all the time, but it is absolutely true. Gone with the Wind, the novel, won the Pulitzer Prize for literature. Gone with the Wind is actually a great book, and the, his, the history you would learn in reading that book or even watching the movie is far better, far more accurate than almost anything you would read or see today, in large part because it treats these people in these historical circumstances as real people. Right. Right. The, the Confederacy was not a proto-fascist regime. Right. It was in many ways a libertarian regime with slavery. It was, it was a, the, the, these sort of, these sort of um, nuances, which weren't that hard for Americans to understand until very recently, seem to be completely obliterated. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, whose father uh, could have served in the Union Army, actually didn't, but Roosevelt grew up with boyhood memories of the war. And his mother's actually from the South. He was a good straddling person in this divide. But he gave a famous speech in which he said, look, we as Americans can take pride in the heroes of the North, the boys who wore the blue, and the heroes of the South, the boys who wore the gray, because both fought with honor and nobility for the right as they saw the right. And that has been the traditional American understanding of that war. It was America's Iliad. There were noble Greeks and noble Trojans on both sides. And how we've gotten away from that, how we've gotten away from the idea that General Robert E. Lee was an admirable and humane man, to Robert E. Lee was at best, you know, Rommel, is, is, is mind-boggling to me. And it is extremely dangerous. When you weaponize your, your past, as the left is trying to do, when you, when you, when you paint it in these sorts of colors, when you encourage people to vandalize the past, you are encouraging war against your own country, your own culture, your own society. And, you know, this, it, that old line is so true. He who controls the past controls the future. If we let, let the left and, we, and if we let the, I hate to say it, but the useful idiots on our side, on the conservative side, who all too often go along with this stuff, if we let this happen, our future is going to look very bleak indeed. Mm-hmm.
Well, uh, yeah, this is Fred, uh, and uh, that's partly what the show was, our show was about, uh, debunking <laughs> a lot of myths out there. But I, I wondered uh, if you would want to weigh in on this uh, um, you know, movement of taking down Confederate statues and so forth. Uh, there's been a, in the case of Custer, he, he was a famous Union general that people are, have gone after. I wondered if you would want to get into that a little bit, the contrast. Yeah, this is, I mean, when, 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 uh, when President Trump said that, you know, this will not end with, uh, with Confederate heroes, he was exactly right. It, it's not like it will not end with, it, with them. It had started even before that right. with other targets, uh, including, I should say, uh, the founders, because after all, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, they were all touched with slavery. They all owned slaves. They ran plantations. Um, or, uh, yeah, Custer. Custer... <laughs> Um, you know, Custer's been disparaged for a while by the left. There was that horrible movie, uh, I, I, I saw when I was a boy and have boycotted ever since, but Little Big Man, which, you know, has this goofy portrayal of Custer. But that was, show, that was sort of the leftist view, was that, that Custer represented this Western arrogance, this genocidal Western arrogance that was then being carried on past the Pacific Ocean over into Vietnam, which is, again, I think untrue, but, but you know, Custer was the feature. This, this shows how ridiculous this has been. Yes, Custer was a Union soldier. Custer fought for the Union. Um, and yet, he too is, is almost too controversial to be mentioned in polite company. Last year, I believe it was, this fast food company, Sonic, had a commercial, completely harmless commercial, of these two guys who are in all those Sonic commercials you see during college football games, who are you know, sitting in their car, and they're, in this episode, they were talking about this goofy joke comparing the name Custer to Custard, and one of the guys was dressed as General <laughs> Custer. This commercial lasted all of a week before it was yanked with apologies because wow. apparently the very representation of Custer, not the, just the mention of his name, was deemed offensive because he was a genocidal Indian killer. Wow. That's absurd. That is completely absurd. Mm-hmm. And not only is it absurd, it is, it is, it is a direct uh, uh, violation, well, not violation of the but, but it's not true about Custer in this way. Custer was actually a man with a great deal of magnanimity, something which is missing in most public discourse today. Absolutely. And Custer actually liked many Confederates, even though he had to fight against them. Many of his best friends at West Point were Southerners. But likewise, in the Indian Wars, Custer actually liked many Indians. He loved his scouts, his native scouts. He famously said, or wrote, that, uh, look, if I were an Indian, I would not want to be cooped up on a reservation. Uh, I would want to be out riding, hunting, and fighting, because that's what Custer liked to do, too, was go riding, hunting, and fighting. Um, so in many ways, he sympathized with the Indians. But he also recognized in both the, the, the Civil War and the Indian Wars his duty, as he saw it, as a, as a man who had been born in Ohio and raised in Michigan and who took an oath to serve the Constitution at West Point. He thought his duty was with the North, with, was with, with the Union. So he, he, was, he was loyal to that vow. He was a very loyal man in his friendships and his marriage and everything. And likewise, uh, even though he sympathized with the Indians, it was his duty to protect uh, America's westward expansion, to, to uh, protect settlers and the railroads from 
Indian raids. And so he did his duty. And, you know, yes, the Indian wars were, were brutal. They were no more brutal, no less brutal than were the, was the Civil War, which was also fought against civilians in the South. It was total war. Um, but, you know, that the Indians, too, were just as brutal. I mean, part of the uh, – it was Phil Sheridan who – said the only good Indian I ever saw was a dead Indian. And that was because these soldiers were often, um, I don't see if emotionally scarred is the right word, but it, it was it was very apparent to them. They were eyewitnesses to uh, Indian atrocities committed against settlers. So when they were all fighting Indians, they often had in the back of their mind an image of a child or a woman who had been captured in and brutally murdered. I think that definitely is something that it's hard for modern people to fully grasp at this time. I mean, when you picture yourself as, you know, maybe a pioneer family out in, you know, Minnesota and you have uh, a war band that comes through, uh, uh, the kind of atrocities that be committed, you know, something like, you know, maybe modern scenes out of, you know, the Middle East and ISIS and things like that. You know, it's hard for us today. I mean, we live so comfortably here in the 21st century. We don't have to deal with hardship. We don't have to deal with hunger. We don't have to deal with uh, violence on a day-to-day basis. It is very difficult, and I think it is good to portray, you know, the past as, you know, yes, I mean, the past has been very violent, very uh, dangerous. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes people suffered immensely. Uh, portray them accurately. Portray them in the understanding that, you know, human beings are certainly certainly fallen beings, uh, but people dealt with hardship, and it is very complicated, and we try to use the past uh, for the point of being an ideological punching bag for some of our, our debates today, when really it's a lot more complicated than that. And these, some of these great heroes, like men like Custer, who, you know, doesn't really, you know, get his due now. I think he's mostly just known for losing the battle of Little Bighorn, and just that's about it. You know, it's great that you kind of bring him alive for, for a modern audience in a kind of you know, as you said, kind of a pro-American way. I mean, I think this is you know, something we see with this movie that just is going to be coming out first man about, you know, about the moon, you know, that where the American flag can't be portrayed in a positive light. One small, I mean, really just small token thing for, you know, American pride, which was the whole debate over the, you know, the, the space race has to be eliminated from a movie, shows the kind of political correctness that, you know, I think it does seem like there, there are a lot of Americans that are yearning for something that, hey, you can show the complications of the past, but show that kind of just a little bit of that that pro-American message that we used to get that kind of binds this country together, this kind of this narrative about who we are. I mean, that just seems to be going away. Wouldn't you say that, Harry? Yes. And I, I get this is one of the um, again, the book is meant to be very funny, very action packed. It's entertainment, but again, there are serious themes beneath it, and one of them is exactly what you're what you're touching on. There is that it, it, uh, it's, it's what I would like to see this book do is help nurture a natural um, affection for this country and its and its heritage and its history. The sort of thing again, which growing up we used to take for granted. Mm-hmm. But you know, things we things you take for granted are are uh, alas uh, not something you take for granted anymore. But in, in, in the in the in the in Armstrong, you see a man who is the happy warrior. You see a man who is a natural un, unthinking patriot. He doesn't have to think about. It. He just knows. Just loves his country. He served his country in uniform all his 
life. You see a man who naturally um, takes differences between men and women for granted. Women are being you know, cherished and protected, and men, well, sometimes you have to fight those guys. <laughs> um, it's just things like that where I just, you know, you wish that this... I think you know one danger, of course, is look. The left trots all this propaganda, so let's trot out counter propaganda. Mm. That doesn't work. What really works is if you've got good entertainment, if you've got things that capture and color a person's imagination for life. Right? If somebody grew up watching Gunsmoke, they have a certain view. Of, I'm just thinking of kind of for random of, of the old west, and and if it's if it's virtues as, as well as the challenges and violence that could that could be part of that era, if you if you if your vision of America's past though is something that's handed down to you by some of these uh, leftist propagandists, you know it's no wonder you don't you don't uh, love your country's past. It's, don't, it's no wonder you think that America needs to be changed. Maybe even socialism is the way, because we sure as heck need to reform this country given all its, you know, its, its previous sins. And that, I think, is the, is, the, is, is the great danger. We need to get back to a natural appreciation, affection, uh, pride in America's history. Uh, yeah, and Harry, just wanted to ask you, uh, just as get your um, op- opinion as a writer on this. Uh, uh, what has it been like to go from a, a historian, straight historian, to being a novelist? Well, you know, one of the advantages of writing history is you know what happens next. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to be a bit more creative with a novel. But, um, but I actually do really love writing fiction. One of my earlier books, earliest books, was a, uh, was a novel. And, I, re- and it, 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 I really hope that I can indeed make this a series, um, both for the pleasure I would take from it, but I hope also the pleasure that readers would take from it and and also to get across some of these subtler points I would like to make in in the in the book, just dropping custody throughout American history in the Old West. Um, but all that is dependent in this very capitalistic way upon the success of the first book. So this is billed as the Custer of the West series, but the series only continues if Custer manages to sell enough copies of, of edition one. But if we if we do, I can give you a teaser that edition two, the second book, would take him to San Francisco, where he would meet, among others, a fellow Union officer, Ambrose Bierce, the author <laughs> of The Devil's Dictionary. I thought it'd be fun to have the two of them mix it up a little bit. Absolutely, but, uh, but we'll see what happens with that. Well, well, that sounds that sounds great, Harry. And that you know, this book is definitely something that's that's it's great. I, I think that a lot of young Americans, in particular, could get something out of this. It's a it's a very patriotic, pro-American narrative and and a highly entertaining account. Uh, again, the name of the book is Armstrong. It's in the Custer of the West series. It's published by Regnery, uh, and it's definitely a joy to read. Uh, Harry, thank you so much for joining us on the Right Side of History. Yeah, thanks, sir. Great. My great pleasure. Thanks to everyone for joining us on The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you're further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at FredLucasWH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. 
Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101 style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.